This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. everybody, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 107 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. In this episode, I am going to do a solo episode. I've been doing a lot of guest interviews lately, and so I wanted to just do a solo episode just to kind of go through some of the content and information I've been creating for my listeners and for the members of my mailing list or, you know, people who follow me, wherever you can follow me, Instagram, Facebook. Facebook, TikTok, wherever. So today I wanted to talk about something that gets asked a lot in professional discussion groups. I've gotten this question asked of me privately, and I think it's a really important topic to cover. And that is how to do evidence-based interventions for kids who need support with social skills that are also neurodiversity affirming. And there's a lot of confusion with certain terms and what they mean. So I wanted to dive in to how we can actually answer this question today. So spoiler alert, it comes back to executive functioning and really what we're talking about when we're talking about pragmatic language or social skills is we're just talking about executive functioning applied to social situations. And there are a lot of people who are still doing adult-led social skills groups. This is a common intervention that is done in the school systems, and I've seen it in private practices as well. And a lot of times this is just because we've had a particular training as therapists, whether you are a psychologist, speech pathologist, or a social worker. 
and I should include counselors, maybe even occupational therapists in there as well. So I have seen individuals of all of those disciplines providing support when it comes to executive functioning, but also support with social skills. And the complaint is the same across all of them, regardless of their discipline. And that is when we're working on social skills, we see poor generalization. That is because the model that people use is not an effective model. And also, partly, it's because they're not addressing the right skills within the model in order to actually help kids succeed. So today, I wanted to talk about both the model and the skills that we need in order to support kids and to do it in a way that is going to support their mental health and also be neurodiversity affirming. And then I'll get into my thoughts on that term, how I phrase it in my personal branding and the way that I describe it in my programs, why I do it the way that I do it, all of those things. So before we get going, I wanted to direct you to a couple key resources where you can get more information on this topic. One is a brand new training that I have just come out with. It is a free webinar where I am going to walk through how K-12 therapists can support students in the areas of social, emotional, mental health, academic, and vocational growth, and really give them the skills that they need to have a successful adulthood and how they can do it by providing executive functioning support in the school. So I am going to share why some kids still experience anxiety despite going to talk therapy and talking through their feelings, why certain kids still have a difficult time with behaviors in the classroom or with social skills, even though they are getting classroom management and going to social skills groups. And then I'm also going to share how K-12 therapists, so all of those professions that I mentioned, can really take the lead on their teams to put these supports in place and why their background and expertise, as well as their role, puts them in a position to do this. And I'll also share how it's possible even if you have limited time and a big caseload. So to learn more about how to sign up for that training, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF leadership. And then I also wanted to share that I do have a written version of some of this information. If you wanted to just have a quick guide in addition to watching the training, that is my executive functioning implementation guide. And to get that guide, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF schools. So now let's get into the episode about social skills interventions that are evidence-based and neurodiversity affirming. I think the best thing for me to do to start off this topic is to point out a couple of the good things that have come out of the neurodiversity movement and some of the problems that existed before this really became a thing. And so the first thing is that back in the day, one of the most common interventions that was done was really focused around behaviorism, focused on just reward, punishment. And one of the things that came about is that sometimes when you are providing rewards and punishments, if you're doing it 
and you're trying to reward a child into doing a skill that they can't do, if it's a skill-based issue, then you're really punishing them or rewarding them for something that is out of their control. So for example, what I am not saying is that kids shouldn't be held accountable for certain things. What I'm also not saying is that there shouldn't be consequences put in place to provide structure and to teach kids just the skill of being able to delay gratification, the concept of having to do your work before you do things that are fun, all of those things are good things to learn. But when you're strictly looking at it like it's reward and punishment, then what you're doing is you're really not looking at the full picture and not necessarily looking at why students might not be doing whatever it is that you want them to do. So for example, if you were to promise me some kind of reward for doing calculus, it doesn't matter what kind of consequences you give me, I'm not going to be able to do it because I don't have the knowledge and skills to do it. Now, if you were to sit me down and give me the support that I need to actually do it, could a consequence or some kind of a reinforcement help motivate me along, help provide me with some structure that I, so that I can stay motivated and kind of move myself through those learning curves? Sure, but it has to be done in conjunction with the support needed in order to do the task. And so if you have a child who needs support with executive functioning and you're not providing them with executive functioning support and you're strictly looking at this like a behavior alone, and not necessarily giving them the support and modeling that they need to do the task, then you're not going to have good results. And so that is something that really is, uh, I think that we started to look into further as a result of the neurodiversity movement, you know, just the concept of we really need to be able to put supports in place and not just look at this like, you know, we need to reward and punish things. So I think that it's a good thing that we're looking into this further. One of the other benefits of the movement was just the idea that the goal of therapy is not to teach kids a set of rules about what is and isn't appropriate because without context, we can't actually apply any of those things. And the other thing is just the idea that even though certain rules and expectations exist, really the goal of therapy is to give kids strategies so that they can function more effectively at the things that they want to do, whether it be performing in an academic context, whether it be getting a job, whether it be having relationships and friendships, all of those things. So when we look at it as there's one way that we can do said task without really reading the situation, it does a couple of things that are harmful. Number one, it teaches kids a set of skills that don't really mean anything to them. So what's going to happen is that they, they might be able to rattle off a list of rules, but when they try to apply it, it looks really awkward and it's kind of stressful for them, or they're just not going to apply it at all. And that's why we see those issues with poor generalization. And also it just makes them, you know, when you're, when you're constantly experiencing failures in certain situations and you're always being told this is appropriate, you're doing it wrong, then that can affect your self-image and it really doesn't set kids up for success and it causes them to just have a lot of anxiety about certain situations. So really what we need to do instead is give kids the skills that they need in order to be successful instead of just teaching them an arbitrary list of rules. 
Probably one of the most obvious things that isn't useful that used to be taught is just eye contact. We now know that, of course, the purpose of eye contact is to show the listener that you're paying attention and to also get people's attention. And there are other ways that you can do this. So we know that really what we want to focus on is helping people to understand that a listener might need you to get their attention in a certain way, or that when you're talking to someone else, you might need to give them some kind of an indication that you're listening to them or paying attention. And that comes back to understanding the other person's perspective. So teaching them that you have to look someone in the eye doesn't necessarily teach the real reason behind the behavior to begin with. And so if we're just focused on eye contact and we don't know why we're doing it, it's not super helpful. And for a lot of people, it ends up being more a distraction and it ends up also feeling very awkward for everybody. So in that situation, again, it's more about being able to understand the other person's perspective rather than being able to make good eye contact. So we kind of got away from the whole point of why we do something. And really that is one of the issues. So again, that's one thing that did come about from the neurodiversity movement that was very helpful that there's this question of what is actually an appropriate way to act in certain situations? And is it really useful to teach skills in that way? Or is there a better way that we can give kids the skills that they need to be successful without making them feel like something's wrong with them? So now I wanted to shift to talking about some of the challenges that have come up with the whole concept of being neurodiversity affirming and really what we can do as clinicians to make sure that we're giving our clients what we need. Because really it's not necessarily about a certain label or brand, it's about understanding the features of effective service delivery and intervention and being able to design those for our students. Really that's what you need to know as a clinician, not necessarily if something has a certain label on it. And so really one of the most common things that I see with this whole concept of neurodiversity is that when somebody says that they're neurodiversity affirming, there's not really a clear definition of what that means and what features need to be present in order for something to be neurodiversity affirming. Now, I have shared that before, and one piece of feedback that I've gotten is that, well, regardless of what intervention you give, you always have to define the features. And I think that that was a good piece of feedback. So that's really why today I wanted to define what we actually need to do in order to support kids. And the things that I'm going to share are going to help kids to be more resilient, more adaptable, which is going to support their self-esteem and sense of well-being, as well as make them successful. One of the other things that I have seen happening recently is that people will share information about their approach and certain interventions, and they won't directly say this is or isn't neurodiversity affirming, but it very clearly outlines the features of effective intervention. And then people will question them because they'll say, oh, but is it neurodiversity affirming? And really, those people shouldn't necessarily have to say that because if you are giving kids what they need, it is by definition affirming them and giving them what they need in order to be 
healthy, both mentally, socially, emotionally, all of those things. And so I see that as more of an issue because really, again, what we need to do is to be able to pick out the pieces and the features of effective intervention. We should be able to look at an intervention and look at the pieces of it and determine whether or not it is a good fit for our clients, not by a certain branding or label, but just based on what we know when it comes to what kids need. So the specific features that we actually need in order to support kids and give them the skills that they need for social situations. And I have seen this in both, you know, pieces of information from people who do say that they're neurodiversity affirming and they directly say that. And then I've also seen it with other people who are just executive functioning specialists and who have successfully helped lots of families and districts to put these supports in place. Um, and you know, I've seen it across the board whether or not people use that label. And that is that we need to support kids' situational awareness and perspective-taking skills. Really, those are the two key skills that kids need in order to be successful in social situations. So there is a chance that someone might say that they're neurodiversity affirming and not teach those skills. And if that's the case, then the intervention probably isn't going to be very effective if you're working with social skills and then vice versa. There might be somebody who is working on those skills and they don't directly say whether or not they are a neurodiversity affirming therapist. Well, in that case, they are going to be affirming their neurodiversity and that they're giving them what they need, even though they're not directly saying it. So it could go either way and we need to be able to parse these things out as clinicians and consumers of information. When we're talking about situational awareness, we're talking about someone's ability to read the room. And this ties into a lot of different skills, just being able to self-regulate, be able to use our working memory skills, all of those things. But we need to be able to read situations because that's what's going to help us know how to apply skills and to modify our own behavior to fit into the situation so that we know what we're supposed to be doing, we know what the expectations are, and we know how to be successful. And then when it comes to perspective taking, again, in order to be able to interact with people and to know how to have conversational exchanges, all of those types of things, we need to be able to understand their perspectives, both to be able to read someone else's intentions and to be able to understand how our behaviors are impacting other people. The problem with things like eye contact goals or other lists of social rules is that when we're given some kind of finite goal, like will maintain a conversational exchange for three exchanges, well, how do you even know that three conversational exchanges is appropriate? Sometimes one exchange might be appropriate depending on the situation. Sometimes more might be appropriate. And so if you can't read the situation and also understand what the other person might be thinking or feeling, then it's hard to know how many exchanges you should have. So having some kind of a goal for a certain number of, of back and forth conversational exchanges or staying on topic, which again, to know how to move from one topic to another appropriately, well, again, Sometimes it's appropriate to switch a topic in a conversation and you need to be able to read the situation on the spot 
to work through all of those nuances. And so these rigid rules that we've taught in the past don't necessarily address those specific things. So I'm sorry, you know, again, those flashcards with social skills and those all these other games where it's, you know, here's this scenario, what's the right answer? That's not necessarily going to cut it. Do we need to sometimes prime and talk about those situations beforehand? Sure, but it has to be context specific and kids need to actually be able to apply those skills. So again, effective intervention for social skills comes back to teaching situational awareness and perspective taking, both which are under that umbrella of executive functioning skills because they require good executive functioning skills in order to be able to execute them successfully. The other thing that we need to consider is not just the skill that we need to teach skills, but also the model in which we need to teach it. And this comes back to thinking of service delivery before you're thinking about your therapy. And what I mean by that is that there are a number of different ways we can provide services and use our clinical skills. Yes, one of them happens to be direct treatment, but there are other models that we can use in order to make sure that we get kids support that they need across the day, whether it be in school or at home. And so some of those other models include things like training others, coaching, consultation, collaborating with others. And then yes, sometimes this might mean instead of doing therapy in a pullout setting, we're maybe doing it in a community-based setting or in a classroom. And these things are going to be very important when it comes to executive functioning. There are a lot of skills that can be effectively targeted with a direct treatment model, but when it comes to executive functioning, we cannot use this model alone. We need to think about really three separate phases of therapy or three components that kind of cycle together. Those are priming real life practice and review and self-evaluation. So in order for kids to learn to use situational awareness and perspective taking, they need practice in a real life context. Now, do they need some prep beforehand and do they need some support after the fact to process what happened? Absolutely. Those are things that could effectively be addressed in a direct treatment model. So we don't wanna throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a place for addressing these skills with a model that we would typically think of, which is again, pulling kids out of class or going to an outpatient type of situation where we're actually doing therapy. But there's a missing piece that is often not there. And that's why people find that they aren't seeing good generalization. And that is the real life practice piece. So in theory, how this could potentially look is that we need to get some information about a real life context in which a child needs support with these skills. Those pre-made Teachers Pay Teachers products that are these random rules and situations are not going to cut it. It needs to be a situation that is relevant to the child. And then what we need to do is there could be an element of talking through the situation and priming them for an upcoming scenario with strategies and cues. Yes, this could include a lot of the things that people typically do in therapy. It could include some kind of practice or role play situation in a structured environment. It could include just talking through what 
we need to do in order to plan for the situation and what we might need to look at or pay attention to once we get into the situation. It could also involve some planning and prep with the people who are going to be in the situation supporting those kids. That's going to be really important to make sure that the people who are going to be around the child when they're in that situation, which is, you know, again, going to be outside of the therapy room, those people need to know how to model and support students. So there's some, again, priming and front-loading. How this might look for the kid is that they might have that planning session with the therapist, but then the next step needs to happen in order for them to actually learn to use those skills. They need to actually go into the situation and experience it in real time and ideally have someone supporting them in those situations so that if they do get stuck on some step in the process, they do they do need some reminders to look around the room or pay attention to something or get back on track. There's someone there supporting them through it. But the main thing is that they need to experience the real life situation. That's often what's missing. Then after that, typically you might have that review and self-evaluation that could happen. You know, again, a teacher could do that in the classroom or they could do it with their therapist after the fact. So we're planning for the situation, we're doing the situation, and then we're reviewing and reevaluating and then priming for the future. So really when you have all three of those phases and you cycle through them, you have more capacity to not just provide kids support when they're seeing you, but also make sure that they have the support they need when they leave their room. If they don't have that support in place, then it's going to be really hard for them to know when to apply those skills. And then the other thing to think about is that really the magic happens when they're in the real life practice. If you, you almost want to think about it like when you're doing the priming in your therapy session, that's almost like practice for the therapy. The real intervention actually happens when they're out in the, in the real situation. So often this piece is missing when we have an adult-led social skills group because it's more academic and social situations are very fluid. They're not a structured academic setting. If you give a child a social skills test, they might be able to tell you what they should do in certain situations. That doesn't mean that they are able to read the situation on the spot and know when to apply those skills that they're telling you about. Just because they can give you the right answer to the question doesn't mean they can apply situational awareness skills. Because answering questions in a structured situation is a completely different skill set than being able to problem solve on the spot. So the main thing is, is that we want to have that model in place. And the way that we do that is we have to start thinking about things that we can do in order to support our students that go beyond just planning for direct treatment. So we can't just think about what we do when we have a student in front of us, we also have to think about what we can do to impact the habits and practices of others, what activities we might need to plan in order to make that happen so that we can ensure kids get support across their day. Now, as far as the term neurodiversity affirming, I don't typically use this term a lot. Um, I am not neurotypical but I don't really pull out my lived experience that much. I focus more on effective practices and research because 
as a person with lived experience, I have found it to be more helpful to focus on the evidence and the research rather than my own personal experiences. Now, do I layer these two things together? Absolutely. But my own lived experience for me was not enough for me to know what to actually do about it. I had to both understand how I experience things, but also understand what has been known to be effective in helping me through certain situations. And as far as putting a neurodiversity affirming label on myself, yes, I think that I am just by definition because I'm giving kids what they need. I don't choose to put that in my branding because I don't really feel like it would clearly communicate anything that would help people understand what I do. I focus more on the strategies that kids need in order to succeed. On some of my sign-up pages for some of my programs, I do answer the question about whether it's neurodiversity affirming just because I know that it's something that people will be asking about, but I don't necessarily put this on the front page of my website because again, I think it's self-explanatory. If you're giving kids what they need, obviously you're going to be doing things that are going to support kids' mental health and help them live happy, healthy, successful lives, which is I think what everybody wants. So that's how I handle it personally. And since I know people are going to ask, what I do is not ABA. Just wanted to be clear about that. So to wrap up, the key takeaways are that number one, the way that we can be neurodiversity affirming and evidence-based is to teach kids situational awareness and perspective taking. Yes, is it okay to sometimes put consequences in place? That is absolutely a good thing to be doing, but it has to be in conjunction with teaching them skills. It has to fit together and give kids the right support that they need in order to be successful. And then we need to think about the model. The model also has to be effective as well. And so that includes priming real life practice and then that review and self-evaluation phase because this is what is going on internally when we are using our executive functioning skills. To get more information about how you can support your kids, both mentally, socially, emotionally, academically, and vocationally, and how you can set them up for success in life, check out my free online training for school clinicians. If you are a speech pathologist, social worker, psychologist, counselor, or other service provider, and you want to know how you can provide executive functioning support for your students across the day and how you can lead your teams in making that happen, then check out this free training. You're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF leadership to grab your free spot. And if you want this information in written form, check out my free executive functioning implementation guide. In this guide, I share why executive functioning skills are so important for supporting kids' mental health, especially if they're experiencing anxiety or if they are not responding to some of the classroom management strategies that are being done in the classroom or if they're not generalizing social skills. So to check out this free guide, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash efschools. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you that if you have a suggestion for a guest, if you would like to be a guest on the show, or if you would like to invite me to speak to your organization or get more information about professional development I offer, 
email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Now we'll wrap up, but thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.